We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle number eight. A right to deliberative referenda shall exist. Specific issues shall be resolved through engage, deliberate, decide. Okay, now we'll come back to engage, deliberate, decide, which we talked about at length in series one, episode one. But this idea of a right to deliberative referenda, referenda, this is really about deliberative democracy in general. And we could contrast that with the current state of affairs where we are, well, as we were saying last week, we're rather muted. You know, we engage every election cycle and there's a lot of blather in between without much engagement of the citizens. And it was striking to me, thinking about this, how this feeds directly into, on the one hand, this culture of political disengagement and apathy, which, granted, we've seen a turn in the tide in in recent years since the Brexit vote and all that. But on the other hand, in opposition to this political disengagement, we have this sort of managerial culture and class of people who are in charge and think up policy in a way which somewhat... Uh, mirrors the first-past-the-post policy zigzag and this pendulous swing between one government setting something up and then another government taking it down. So Mm. on this sort of managerial level, we have a a managerial person in charge, well, has decided something, steps out and announces it, and then defends it in the face of political disaster without really having a clear idea of how it will be received. So this decide, announce, defend has been characterised. I'm not sure, is this your characterisation, Ed, or is this a sort of general... This this is an an original from me, yes. Okay, great. So this decide, announce, defend, well, it's great. This dad syndrome is something we've seen so much over the years. It's almost, I mean, it's tragic. It's kind of funny in places and, and absolutely tragic in other places. So we see the poll tax, decide on taxing voting, announcing it, and then, of course, we have the poll tax riots. I guess it applies to pretty much every road or rail plan that goes in where classically planners put it through the main historic monuments. People come out and object, and then it goes around the monuments, so the discussion is around saving the monuments and not around whether there's a road. One of the more tragic uh, examples recently would be the uh, cladding, the fire cladding on Grenfell Tower, where 
there was, in fact, uh, opposition from the people living in Grenfell Tower, which was uh, roundly ignored by this managerial class in Kensington Borough Council, uh, which is, I guess is still being teased out. And then even the other day, we had Priti Patel's, or I suppose the government's, over 300-page police crime sentencing and courts bill, which was decided, announced uh, to uproar and then defended. And indeed, I was looking up on Wikipedia about that. There's a nice line there. So it says the bill was welcomed by the police federation. In contrast with the police federation, the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners registered their disagreement with the bill. On the topic of proposed legally binding restrictions on protests, Chair Paddy Tipping stated, very dryly, by the way, it's quite nice, I think politicians would be wise to leave decisions to responsible people. They've got to leave people to make local decisions in local circumstances, which is very nicely put and very much in line with our overall orientation towards systems thinking. But anyway, mm. the result of this bill was more protests, riots in Bristol in particular, and general discontent. So thinking about all that, Ed, I was kind of, you know, it's very easy to sort of characterise this as being more Tory stupidity. But, you know, that as we've often said, you know, the Tories are there in their orientation trying to sort things out the way they think is best. And indeed, we've seen this with previous governments and there's a great line in uh that he came out with in series one episode one um where we really spelt out systems thinking in relation to politics and you talked about your time working with the blair government and you said the you talked about how the decay from the in terms of policy implementation the decay from the talking shop in westminster to beneficial impact on the ground was huge hmm. And I thought a good way of of getting our heads around this sort of context would be maybe just to think about where you saw that, where you know how it was, the excitement of the talking shop, first of all. And I think you, as we've talked about before, you were chair of Relate, you know, the relationships counselling charity, and then also of Demos, the the de- democracy uh, think. think tank. So then you have this these p- bright people in a think tank. And then there's this sort of thing that will travel out to Lancashire or Cornwall or wherever else and maybe not be quite as brilliantly clear-cut as it was in, in concept. So, yeah, would you like to talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the first thing, you know, elections, elections once every four or five years. And as you say, I mean, between elections, how much power do we have? Well, uh, basically, none is the answer it's you know i call these elections vote and piss off you voted for us whoever us is and now we're going to get on with life and oh who who are you uh an elector a citizen you're not terribly interesting and of course you've got the whole preferential lobbying thing going on but you've got the egos going on and these people actually thinking that from the center they can make these massive decisions. So, as you say, in relation to the decay, you see these tiny top, you know, this very small number of people taking all of these decisions, actually completely overwhelmed. Mm. Um, 
unable to bring in all of the multiple perspectives, the knowing in action, the different opinions. And just to cut in there, the um, as a, as a picture of that, I remember you saying how how the thick of it and and yes, Minster are really good, quite good representations of that yeah. incapacity. I mean, they're, they're both pretty good examples of what goes on. So you get something like the health service, which every time a government comes in of whichever persuasion, of course, it may be the same party, but actually a different group. And they've got their really good ideas now, and they're going to do it like this. And off they charge behind closed doors. There may be a bit of notional consultation, um, which is then taken up or ignored, depending on what it says. And they come out with a new scheme. And the new scheme is, as they say, rolled out. And this sort of juggernaut rolls over everyone. And this is supposed to make life better. Well, if it makes life better, why on earth has the health service and the school service been under continual reform Mm. (laughs) since the early 80s? And they're still not reformed. Mm. So we're going to have to reform them again. And we just go through this. And, of course, they come out with these grand ideas that then by the time they filter down to the actual interaction with the patient, the quality of care given to the patient, the way the hospital works, it's just another disruption. And the organisation itself, the health authority, the GP's practice, has to work very hard to work its way round the rules coming out of the Mm. centre in order to make the system work. And it's worth, I mean, the protest thing, the bill banning protest or most of it, the next time we're going to get a chance to in any way respond to the protest bill. And then, of course, it'll be wrapped up with a million other things that we're weighing up as we go to election is in four years time when there's an election well is this democracy and then you step back and you say well whose decision is this there are several issues here that are running one is that the quality of the decision and getting it right secondly is how well will it be implemented but thirdly there's the fundamental issue is protest. So who should be deciding that? Well, is this for a government to decide whether people can complain about it or not, and in what manner? Or is this actually for us, for the citizens, to say, well, actually, on balance, we want the opportunities to express our opinions and in these various ways? Mm. And I don't think there's any doubt at all that protest should be something which is a decision for the nation. And if you're going to do that, then you need to use the forms of participative and deliberative democracy that we've been talking about. That's a great survey of the policy decay. But I was thinking in particular of how, um, of where, you know, where, where when you were participating in these groups, did you see particular discussions lead to, to great hopes? I mean, there was a, a time where you very much pivoted from being a believer in the effectiveness of Westminster to, as you mm. said before, realising that you were wasting your time. So there must have been a particular point where you looked at this and yeah. thought, OK, well, this is never going to work. Very, 
a very good example was in, uh, as you referred earlier, my role in Relate. Now, um, when it comes to divorce, the way in which divorce certainly was and still to a considerable extent is handled in this country is an adversarial process. I mean, and I'm talking particularly when there are children involved. So, you know, custody, uh, handling the children and all the rest of it. Well, you looked around the world, there you found what are called parenting plans. So you file for divorce or separation and you are required, the pair of you, to come up with a parenting plan for how you propose to share, look after, have custody of and so on, the children. So one of the things that was introduced, and this was in 1996, by the then Lord Chancellor, who's a Conservative Lord Chancellor, and I described his work then as the best piece of social policy I'd seen from this government, which he then requoted back in the Lords. Is this the, the major government? This was the major government because he was trying to introduce, and indeed introduced pilots around the notion of parents getting together parents being obligated to literally put the children first by saying, rather than battling over custody, which is the worst possible thing you can do for children, to say, okay, you are responsible adults, how are you going to put this stuff in place? That there would be mediation to be provided if agreement couldn't be reached on the table. But if you like, the last thing you would do is go to court over this. Now, this programme was trialled, then New Labour got in, then there was a guy, Geoffrey Hoon, that's right, who ended up in the Lord Chancellor's Department, who was a lawyer. Mm. And of course, the lawyers often have a great interest in an adversarial conflict because they get money. But also, they come at this with a legal mindset. Which is to say, a defensive mindset, really. They come to this with a a defensive mindset rather than a collaborative. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and we're going to defend the status quo and so on. And he scrapped the scheme. And it was like, for goodness sake, we were slowly catching up with parts of the world that handle this far, far better than we do. Hmm. And the thing just got scrapped on the whim of a minister's pen. I've mentioned the health service and, you know, watching that go back and forth. Schools and watching that go back and forth. And I mean, just about anything else where these grand plans coming out from the centre eventually decayed and, and often fell flat on their face by the time they got to the ground. So you then say, well, what's a better way of doing this? Mm. And and this is not just about, oh, democracy is a good thing, let's have democracy, but it's about getting better decisions. Mm. So, you know, if you And again, this brings us to that term deliberative democracy, this this idea of it being a sort of constant or a perpetual process rather than a once in a while clock clock being wound up, as it were. Yeah, and the the process is there at 
any level. So mm. it might be a national level. So what are we? Which is what the Canadians did with their, what are we going to do about our health service? And they had an extensive program mm. of deliberation in two thousand. Let's um, come back to that it, in a second because I'd like to just quickly relate this to the idea of subsidiarity and how this completely flips the whole idea of waiting for power to come from this distant notional centre to this idea that we already have the power, we just need to assert it. You know, it's just about being clear about who has the choice and then engaging in that. And if this is the case, we need to be involved in decision-making. And again, this brings us to that great de Tocqueville observation about America, the, the art of association, that this participatory democracy or this deliberative democracy is something that is a part of our lives. And this brings us very directly to this idea of, of engagement in the engage, deliberate, decide, that, that somehow people are engaged and talk about it. And you've mentioned a few, well, previous to, to starting the, show, the talk today, you've mentioned a few great examples of this, including the Canadian Health Service, the Irish Abortion Referendum, Citizens Assembly, and so on. Um, do you want to have a quick talk through those? Yeah, so we've got this National Health Service here. People are very attached to it in many respects because they fear, I think, the alternative, which the alternative is often portrayed as the American model, which is rubbish at all sorts of levels. Mm. Um, but actually, no one looks closer to home at the National Health Service models in Denmark or France or Germany or whatever, which are national health services, but organise things in a somewhat different way. So there you are in Canada, they've got the, the problems that all health services have. So A, people are living longer, hmm. and therefore there is a greater cost demand, fairly obviously, and particularly the older you are, the, the higher consumer of health services you'll be. B, technology and drug development, which means we can treat more and more things so that the costs keep rising. Now, in Canada, they said, OK, yeah, we've got this problem. They, they had a sort of Medicare arrangement over there, which is a sort of insurance based arrangement. And they said, well, what are we going to do? So this guy was set up as a royal commission. He was a one person royal commission, which is the only way a royal commission ever works. And he said, we're going to engage. Now, what does he mean by that? So this is all pre-internet, remember. Mm. So there were a lot of... Can you give us a year? What year is this, roughly? 2000. Okay. So he set up a number of regional groupings where people were brought together. And the crucial thing with engagement is not to engage on solutions, but to engage, first of all, on the problem or is there a problem or the nature of the problem so those regional groupings had experts coming in with all sorts of evidence and opinions of course you had people expressing opinions through politics and through values you had discussion these sessions were all televised and openly available. Opinion polls were done as well. You've got all sorts of other groupings. So there was a national conversation amongst those people that wanted to join in the conversation, which was quite a lot. And working through, they then built up a number of options. There were seven options, I think. 
They then again went through the process of deliberation about these options and the pluses and minuses of them. And then they went through a process of sieving and ranking the options. And when you say they, then, you're talking about going back to these groups at the lowest level or the, or the, yeah, the most I mean, local it, level. It's actually what we now call citizens' assemblies. So these were groups of 40 randomly selected people in, I think, 12 regions of Canada. Mm -hmm. And they came back and actually it was really a values-based decision, which was basically saying, well, we want what we've got, but we need it to be funded properly and for the funding not to be capped by all the pressures of general taxation, which is what we have over here. So Canada moved on. You know, you might have a local issue. So mm. there's one currently running, which I just heard about the other night, at Shepton Mallet, a place in Somerset. The county council, under the austerity pressures, one understands them, have to close the library. The local folks mm. are going, well, actually, this library is, it's not just a library where people get books out. It's a very important meeting place. There was a footfall in a town of, 8,000, less than 8,000 actually, mm. a footfall of 40,000 went through this place oh, wow. within a year. So a vital community centre, a vital bringing together of people. And they got a group together, the group starts talking. The group is perfectly able to understand that there are financial pressures. You know, often people say, oh, well, you can't ask the people, you know, the people are stupid. Hmm. The fact of the matter is, if you get people engaged with facts, evidence, opinions, and so on, people are perfectly capable always, every time of coming to a responsible decision hmm. because, you know, they know about money as much as anyone else. So they went through a whole process and the county council were cooperative. They didn't just say, right, it's closing, that's the end of it. There was the option for it to be continued with, but through civil society. Mm. So they now have this thing called Seven Starlings, which is a civil society organisation drawn from the community in Shepton Mallet, working with the council to run the library. It's now open longer. It does a wider range of things. It uses volunteers. It's produced a better outcome. Mm. None of that came from the centre. None of that came from Whitehall particularly. It released energy and motivation and power. And one of the other points that we were talking about earlier on is that when you get one of these examples, there was another one mm. around here at Abergrant Gregan, a waterfall where there was a conflict over taking trees down and all of this timber getting carted through the tiny village there. And they went through a process and they sorted it out. Subsequently, without any stimulation externally from anyone, they set up a cafe and a number of other things. So it's not just that taking that decision-specific democracy, you are building community capacity, community cohesion, and indeed community contentment and mm. happiness. This is a really interesting point because um, I, when I was looking at deliberative democracy on Wikipedia, there's a great little line about James Fishkin, who seems to be a leading thinker in this area, where they say, uh, studies by James Fishkin and others have found that deliberative democracy 
tends to produce outcomes which are superior to those in other forms of democracy. Deliberative democracy produces less partisanship, more sympathy for opposing views, more respect for evidence-based reasoning rather than opinion, a greater commitment to the decisions taken by those involved, and a greater chance for widely shared consensus to emerge, thus promoting social cohesion between people from different backgrounds. I mean, as if we don't need that at the moment. And then they go on to say, Fishkin cites extensive empirical support for the increase in public spiritedness that is often caused by participation in deliberation and says theoretical support can be traced back to the foundational democratic thinkers such as John Stuart Mill and our favourite Alexis de Tocqueville, who, of course, talks about the art of association in America. Now, when I read this, I was thinking back to our one of our previous discussions. I think it was at the end of the last series where we were talking about social purpose in the sort of context of your your overall kind of framework for the different elements of government. And then we talked about the blue zones where social purpose feeds so strongly into people's longevity. So these blue zones, if I remember rightly, are places where people have uh, particularly long and healthy and happy lives. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just chuck in a couple of other points. I mean, Fishkin, and, you know, got his book here. 1991, University of Yale. This stuff is 30 years old. And it was well-established and old there. There is nothing new about this stuff. This mm. stuff has been around for years and years. It works. The second point that I pick out from the quote you made there was the commitment to the decision, which means that you get so much better implementation. You know, the Shepton Mallet thing. I mean, the people there are going to be just falling over themselves to make that work, whereas, you know, the centrally driven thing, which finally makes its way down to Shepton Mallet or wherever it may be, well, where the hell did that come from? Why am I interested in it? Why am I going to get motivated? Mm-hmm. So, so you get much better implementation. The wider point that you were making there about social purpose and the people in the blue zones, you know, lives of over 100, and they've tried to work out, you know, why is it in these blue zones around the world, seven of them particularly, I think, why is it people are living so long? Well, some of it is diet and, and some of it is, you know, active lifestyles. Mm. But one of the things they particularly alighted upon was the sense of each individual having a social purpose. Mm. I get up in the morning and I'm motivated because I want that library to work mm. and I want that to engage people for people to meet, for people to be sociable, uh, for people to be educated, to extend their minds and so on and so forth. And they found the same thing in these blue zones. And the purpose might be actually someone growing vegetables. Mm. They really had a purpose, a reason for getting up in the morning. I mean, another point, I don't know whether to chuck it in now, but we've had referendums in this country But one of the crucial things that comes out of how you do this stuff properly is that the quality of deliberation, information and engagement pre the referendum Mm. determine the quality 
and result of the referendum itself. Would the Irish, maybe you'd like to talk about that in, in relation to the abortion referendum in Ireland? Yeah, and, and that was a classic case where, you know, the, the, there was all the usual fake news and all the rest of it buzzing around like mad, but they had a proper process of widespread engagement, which was centred on the Citizens' Assembly, composed of nearly 100 randomly selected people. And there's a particularly good Irish journalist, Fintan O'Toole, mm. and his conclusions out of the Irish abortion referendum and why it worked so well, why it countered all of the fake news and the ramshackle politics that we had for the Brexit referendum were as follows. One, trust the people. Um, two, be honest. Gosh, there's the thing. Three, talk to everybody and make assumptions about nobody. This is the Galileo thing. Mm. And four, personalise the political. Understand that trust emerges when people meet others as legitimate others telling their stories. That's very nice. Well, that's a great place to finish, unless, of course, you want to quickly talk about Julia Lynch, who reached similar analogous conclusions from, from a fairly lengthy, widespread study. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to just come out, Professor Julia Lynch... Of Harvard, isn't she? She's... Is she, yes, yes. Um, but she, And she's done a lot of work in this country. She knew Newcastle particularly well for some reason, and Actually, she put up the metro map in Newcastle and put various stops that you could get off by it. And if that was your destination, then on average, here is your life expectancy, which, you know, varied quite substantially, <laughs> depending on which, you know, wow. which really emphasised the point about inequality. So she's talking about the politics of inequality. And she studied it and she's looked at all of the various measures that have been undertaken to address inequality, the minimum wage, stopping smoking, more welfare, less welfare, and so on and so forth. And she said, basically, all of these policies, from whichever political direction they came from, have had no impact on inequality, which mirrors work that Stein Ringen did after New Labour. And, you know, there they are. They, you know, really want to do something about inequality. Mm. No question about their commitment and desire. At the end of the day, I'm afraid, terribly sorry, lads, it hasn't changed. Mm. So she's then saying, well, you know, why, despite all of this effort, has nothing changed? Well, fundamentally, it's the economic system and the way in which that has, and the tax system, the way in which that has driven inequality if you want to do something really substantial about inequality, then you need to do three things. One is change the quality and nature of lawmakers, as she calls them. In other words, the people coming into Parliament to diversify them in a, in a, in a big, big way. Secondly, reform the electoral system, so proportional representation, not the antiquated first-past-the-post nonsense. Thirdly, participative institutions and particularly participative and deliberative democracy. So, yes, again, yeah. here we are. This is not a sort of add-on to our 
principles for systemic governance from a group of people who are sort of liberal-minded or they're just doing it because it's democratic and good. This stuff has really hard, important, significant impacts upon our society and upon us as individuals. Well, we can link uh, Julia Lynch, Fintan O'Toole, and also Wikipedia and all the other stuff that we've discussed in the show notes. Ed, would you like to move on to next week, principle number nine? Number nine, central government only undertakes tasks or makes decisions which localities cannot or which require uniform regulation. This sounds like Switzerland and sounds like a very clear expression of subsidiarity. So I look forward to that next week. As always, we we get there in the end. (laughs) Thanks, Ed. Yeah, thanks, Philip. It was excellent.